two and a half admins, episode 168. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. I think we need to talk about Okta. They have had a few incidents lately that have shaken confidence in them. It would appear that there's an APT that has got Okta firmly in its sights, just from the nature and the timing of these compromises that keep happening. The most recent one is technically not a compromise in Okta's network at all. However, Okta employees' health information in a third-party healthcare provider was snarfed and dumped and includes an awful lot of personal information for Okta's employees that surely they would not be happy about. But uh, the important takeaway here is that this is the kind of data that you use to pivot later. You get this kind of information along with the employees' names and, you know, the medical history and whatever, which they may not have cared that much about that, but you're likely to get some credentials along with that that you might be able to reuse for a pivot. You're going to get a lot of interesting information that will help you if you want to do an old school phone-in and social engineering attack. Well, it helps if you know all of this, like, you know, really private information. You can use that to try to help pass yourself off as somebody legit. So this is basically just an indication that, you know, whoever it is that's got Okta in their sites has absolutely not given up. And uh, they're not just bouncing off the shields either. It's going to continue to be a little unnerving seeing these kind of attacks happen if, you know, the the group in question never gets caught or Okta isn't able to up its game to the point where, yes, this APT keeps attacking, but they're not getting somewhere. As long as they keep getting places, it's going to continue being upsetting. Well, yeah, and even if Okta steps up there's a security enough that they're not the ones getting hit anymore, it turns out that if your health insurance provider doesn't have good security, then they're going to get in there and then a bunch of other ancillary services and, and companies around your company can be the thing that gets you in. Because like you were saying, if you can get all the details on the employees from the health insurance, you might, A, be able to find out which employees are bribable because they owe a lot of money to their, they've run up a lot of healthcare costs. Or even just, we have a list of the people we want to specifically target to you know get into their email or their personal computer so that we can then get into Okta, which is what happened with the original breach. What Okta security suspects happened is that somebody logged in to their personal Google account on their Okta managed laptop and it saved their username and password. And so then someone, when we were able to compromise their personal Google account, was able to then log into Okta. Yeah. And they kind of made it sound like it was the employee's fault, which it really wasn't. No. Well, well, it kind of was, but it wasn't. Yes. It was the employee's fault, but it was more Okta's fault for allowing that to be a vector. Yeah. You don't get to duck behind somebody or something when you're mm -hmm. Okta and it comes to security issues. Because for those of you who aren't familiar, Okta's entire purpose in life is to make things supposedly more secure, not less. In order to use Okta, what you as a company do is uh, you get a, a single sign-on platform. That's that's what Okta is. And it has integrations for any number of different platforms. I mean, I think it's literally in the list of hundreds. And you can actually craft modules to tie Okta into other things that it isn't already in. So the idea being, whatever set of selections you have from whatever set of vendors, maybe even homegrown software, well, you can just stop worrying about, you know, having credentials at all these different places and just have the one set of credentials at Okta that will get your employees into literally every single thing, internal and external, they need to get the job done. 
all at the same time enforcing controls on that, having mm-hmm. logs on it, noticing patterns, forcing 2FA, etc. Except <laughs> that's the pitch. But the thing that isn't in the pitch that really probably should be spelled out a little better, in my opinion, is that in order to do that, I mean, yeah, in theory, you're saying, well, my single sign-on will be the bestest sign-on I could have, and that'll make it worth it, but it's still a single sign-on that gets you into every single thing. And Okta is the largest provider I'm aware of for services like that. You run into it all the time in, uh, you know, mid-market scale and up businesses. I don't usually see it in small business, but it's everywhere in enterprise and mid-market. And um, you don't get to make excuses when that's the market you're going for. You are where the buck stops because your whole pitch is let us make security happen because we're better at it than you are. There's nowhere to dodge here. Either you did it or you didn't do it, and they didn't get the job done. In particular, the problem here was that via the Google Password Manager autosave in Chrome, the attackers got not this person's individual user account at Okta, which has you know access controls and can't do so much, but a service account, basically an administrator account that allowed them to do a lot more. And because these service accounts are meant for automating machine-to-machine functions and not regular user logins, they don't have MFA like the regular user accounts do. One wonders why they're using accounts for that instead of things like API keys or at least having some other mechanism beyond just a static password as the way you access one of these service accounts. But it turns out that that service account is how Okta got breached. For that matter, one might wonder, why do employees have access to this single factor service account so loosely controlled that they can end up just casually dumping it into their Google password manager to begin with? Exactly. If you're going to have single factor accounts that are that critically important to an organization and a mission that size, you have to treat them appropriately. And treating them appropriately does not just mean, oh, well, you know, I think Bob has the password to that. (laughs) The only equivalent that I've got in my setup is some of my backups that use a key pair. And there's no way that I would paste that key, either one, the the private or the public, into Chrome. This must have been just a password. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been in the password manager, surely. Yeah, it it was just a password. My point is that, um, I mean, sometimes it's going to happen. Service accounts are a thing, and, and sometimes they are necessary. And whether whether you say service account or whether you say API with a key, it still boils down to you know a secret that is critically important not to leak. Mm. And that when you're talking about a large organization like this, you, you don't just handle it casually. It should neither be short enough and simple enough for an employee to just casually decide to type it into their password manager, nor should they have access to it in a way in which it would be easy or make sense for them to dump it into a password manager. The chain of events that we have here where an employee puts the password for a service account into their personal Google password manager says that you can use that just on a normal computer from somewhere like it doesn't need to be from like a blessed server. It's not a blessed application like, no, just, you know, fire that up in your browser and go. Yeah. Or even an allow listed IP or something. Yeah. There's, there's any number of controls that should have gotten in the way. And the fact that those controls weren't there 
Like that's a bigger problem than the actual breach itself. The employee putting the thing in their password manager is certainly bad. And like, that's a black mark on that employee, but that's nowhere near as heavy a black mark as the one on the organization that made it possible and convenient for an employee to do that with a critically important service account in the first place. It sort of makes you wonder what other best practices they're not following, given that they are supposed to be, like you said, the name you know in security. Exactly. And again, that, you know, that, that's my biggest point here. I wouldn't actually go this hard on a company that had made the same mistakes and was not literally in the business of saying, we will secure all your stuff for you to the rest of the world. When you say security is our job, you know, it just again, like, okay. That's it. It's your job. You you don't get to have any excuses. Yeah, it's the thing we've said a couple of times. The cloud kept trying to sell us this idea that well, we'll have the really good security team that'll be better than yours and we'll take care of this for you. And then repeatedly, they have fallen down and not done that. Even in the best possible circumstances, we're like, yes, th they really do have an outstanding security team. That outstanding security team really does pay proper due diligence all the time to what they need to do, it's already still kind of a dubious thing to say, therefore, let our team secure the whole internet, including you, because, okay, well, yeah, they might be better at security than I am, but they're also putting me into a tremendously more valuable basket for people to try to raid than I was in before. You're not going to try and say that enterprises should have all of their employees use Diceware passwords, are you, Jim? I'm trying to say that the entire human species should really be taking security a lot more seriously than it does. Yeah, but they're not going to. Your, your standard employees in accounts or design or whatever it is are not going to give a shit about security unless they're forced to. Yeah, but, but in this case, this wasn't somebody from the accounting department. This is somebody with access to a service account. Yep. And they really should have been taking it more seriously. Yep. True. But that is, again, not to blame the individual person as the policies of the company that allowed that to happen. No, but what I'm getting at is you can't blame enterprises for using stuff like single sign-on. I absolutely can. If I can't blame a company with billion-dollar-plus market cap for not doing due diligence to do the things that they need to do to protect their own assets, who the hell can I blame? But the whole point of single sign-on is that you outsource the security to someone. It can be internal, too. You can outsource it, but it's still your responsibility to, to do the research and figure out, is this a good plan for me to outsource this or not? Yeah, so you can't just say, oh, we outsourced it to some fly-by-night company, so it's not our fault that they weren't any good. Yeah, but Okta's not a fly-by-night company. I know that. But if their customers aren't keeping them honest and making sure they're actually delivering what they're selling, then who is going to? Mm-hmm. Okay, this episode is sponsored by the Traceroute podcast. AI continues to be integrated into every facet of our lives, from digital photography to image and text generation and beyond. It's time for us all to start questioning, is AI our friend or our worst enemy? That's the focus of the two-part season opener of the award-winning Traceroute podcast. Don't miss out on this and other ways we can peel back the layers of the tech stack and reveal the humanity in the hardware. Start listening this week. In every episode of Traceroute, a team of technologists seeks to untangle the complex questions of who shapes the internet. Seasons 1 and 2 gave us a crucial understanding of the inner workings of technology while revealing the human element behind the tech. And Season 3 tackles not just AI questions, but also how can we use technology to preserve the Earth? Who influences the technology that gets made? What happened to the flying cars we were promised? 
AI is something I'm pretty skeptical about, so it'll be really interesting to hear what the experts on Traceroute have to say about it. So listen and follow the new season of Traceroute starting November 2nd on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check out Traceroute now. This tiny device is sending updated iPhones into a never-ending DOS loop. And this is the Flipper Zero. I don't know that we should really be saying that it's the Flipper Zero is the reason that these iPhones are going to a, into a uh, boot loop. Yes, you can use the Flipper Zero specifically as a software-defined radio in, in order to DOS an iPhone, but uh, let's put the blame where it's due, and that's at Apple's feet, not at that device manufacturer's. You're saying that bombarding an iPhone with loads of Bluetooth requests shouldn't crash it then? I am both saying that, and uh, I'm also saying that the Flipper Zero is not the only device that you could do that with. It happens to be an easily available one, and uh, one that it's fairly easy to do that, but we're not talking about some incredibly sophisticated attack that requires some unique feature to the Flipper Zero. You basically just need low-level access to Bluetooth, and that's it. You know, just keep trying to connect. It doesn't get much simpler than that. Yeah, like the Flipper Zero is basically a Swiss Army knife of communication stuff. So it can do radio signals, RFID, NFC, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, AM, FM, etc. And so you can use it to change the channels of the TV on a, at a bar or clone a hotel keycard, or in this case, bombard an iPhone with Bluetooth pairing requests until it falls over. The original story that uh, that I put in our show doc for this from, from Ars Technica, the thing that really blew me, well, there were two things that really blew me away about it. And, you know, one was that just the incredibly poor job in QAing the Bluetooth routines in the updated version of iOS. It just, it blows my mind that you could have the incredible responsibility of delivering code to that many millions of people via iPhones and just not bother to close an issue like, oh, yeah, if somebody literally just asked to connect with Bluetooth over and over, it will make the phone unusable. I mean, this shouldn't be something that you need a PhD to think of, you know? I mean, this is a pretty obvious type of vulnerability. This is not just like some little shareware program that, you know, like baby's first program they put it on an app store somewhere. This is the iPhone, and nobody should be introducing vulnerabilities that are that criminally obvious. The other thing that really leaped out at me in this particular story was that the discovery of the Flipper Zero being used to DOS iPhones in this particular case was just some jackass on a subway just was sitting out with a with his phone USB tethered to his MacBook so that he could work with a Flipper Zero sat right next to it just casually screwing everybody else up on the train. <laughs> no apparent reason. Just, this is how I do my work. At first, I screw everybody else over, and then I tether my computer to my phone so that I can actually use it, and then I go from there. Like, I can understand when you're testing a device for Bluetooth functionality, you try pairing it to lots of different things. You don't think of an attack that's just, what if I sent you 100 pairing requests in a second or in a, over the course of even a minute? until the device fell over. Really? As, as a manufacturer of a mass market Bluetooth device, it wouldn't occur to you to think about that? To think about what happens if this device receives a shitload of, you know, pairing requests? Yeah, except for I think I would assume a shitload wouldn't be more than like five, not uh, <laughs> rapid series like that. My other question, I suppose, is what other devices will fall over when you do this? And partly it's like, how has this not come up for the iPhone before? I thought it had. 
Yes, this kind of thing has happened before, but it's worth noting that this was a new vulnerability introduced with iOS 17. It was not present in 16. iPhones on 16 handled this issue like you would expect them to, you know, which is to say not DOSing you with never-ending broadcast spam. It reminds me a lot of, you remember back in the day um, when Windows had just like the the broadcast port? The net message? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just throw up anything on anybody's screen? Yeah. Kind of reminds me of that. It does a bit. It does kind of show that there's a certain mindset you have to have to do the defensive programming for this. And I'm sure now, from now on, every iPhone will be tested against a Flipper Zero type device for this specific attack. Are you sure? Because, I mean, this there wasn't anything that novel about this. I'm not really sure that if an organization the size and payroll of Apple isn't already making sure that they have the right people reviewing things, I'm not really sure that this one incident is going to be the thing that makes them change their ways for good. Well, I'm not talking about changing their way. I'm just saying this specific thing will have a regression test. Mm. Not that they're going to think of the entire class. Because oftentimes it's very difficult to think of everything everybody hasn't thought of yet. I hear you, but again, this this is just not sophisticated at all. And especially given that Apple's research and development budget is somewhere in the order of $30 billion a year. Yeah, but I think that's mostly focused on building the next thing, not... Like, I don't think much of the R&D budget is for security. That's a totally different budget. Well, then, you know, maybe you peel five really solid people worth the payroll out of that 30 billion R&D for the next thing. And you make sure the current thing isn't just completely bonkers stupid. Mm-hmm. Well, I also just wondering about the user interface. What do you do when the device gets that? Like, you don't want to just ignore it because then somebody could basically jam your phone and not let it actually associate with the Bluetooth device you're trying to talk to. I also wonder about, like, I've seen places where they use, I'm guessing it's actually NFC for, like, you use your phone to unlock the door for, like, a parking garage. Mm -hmm. And if somebody could just stand around with a flipper zero and jam the communication so that nobody can get into the building. And you have, like, actual denial of service, not just against somebody's phone, but against the access control for a whole building. Well, denial of service is denial of service. It's just whether it's something you cared about or not. Right. My point was, how do you design the UI on the phone to deal with the fact that it needs to be able to handle this being spam and that you don't want 99 notifications per second, but at the same time that you need to still be able to pick out the one that you're actually trying to talk to. You rate limit the notifications and you give an option to blacklist that particular uh, MAC address. Yeah, although the Flipper Zero is maybe rolling its MAC address or something. The Flipper Zero could. The Flipper Zero was not in this particular instance, time. and that's... That's part of the reason why, I mean, ideally, again, you don't automatically black hole that Mac, but you offer the user, would you like to? Yeah. Because that could also help with uh, the battery issues because, you know, you're you're definitely spinning up the processor pretty hard dealing with just a massive flood of incoming pair requests. And you might be able to deal with that a lot more efficiently if you can just say, okay, look, anything that comes from this Mac, just don't even look at it any further than that. Done with it. Over. Jim, you recently attended the Ubuntu Summit in Riga, Latvia, and you met up with a bunch of the other Late Night Linux family hosts. I did. This was the uh, second Ubuntu Summit in a row for me. The last one last year was in uh, Praha, known to most Westerners as Prague. I don't really know why we decided to turn the ha into a ga, but there it is. This year's Ubuntu Summit, I enjoyed quite a bit more. Praha is a lovely city. And if I, like, as a choice of destination, I would probably rather go there than, than go to Latvia again. But the conference was much better this year. I really have to hand it to the team at Canonical. 
I think they looked at a lot of feedback and uh, they, they made some real significant year-on-year improvements. Last year, I had the complaint that it seemed less like the Ubuntu Summit and more like the snap in your face all the time, no matter what conference. And uh, there wasn't any kind of an issue like that this time. There was a, a wide breadth of talks and topics and nothing felt like forced down from above. It, it felt more like, you know, a real community conference. Yeah, from what I saw, there was all sorts there. WSL stuff, some Snap stuff, of course, and Asahi, Ubuntu running on M1 Max or M Series Max. So yeah, it did seem a lot more community-based and a lot less kind of, this is Canonical's agenda. I felt kind of bad for the Microsoft guy, though, because like any Linux conference where Microsoft shows up and tries to give a WSL talk, I mean... You could just pitch bowling balls through that room and not worry about hitting anybody in the, in the crowd, so to speak. It was me and like 10 people in the ballroom listening. But it was a good talk. It was a great talk. It was the best WSL talk I've attended, and I've attended quite a few. By far the best part, Craig got just like with childlike glee towards the end of the presentation because he's like, now I get to show you this dumb thing that absolutely does not fly at Microsoft conferences. Nobody cares, but... I think it's hilarious. It's a lot of fun, yada, yada, yada. And what he does is he goes to Notepad on his Windows laptop and he opens up the mount into the Linux VM's file system and he drops down to dev PTY0, which is the actual pseudo terminal that his WSL console is using at the moment. So he opens it in Notepad, types in hello world, clicks file and save, and you see hello world barf out at the prompt in the WSL terminal, which, (laughs) I mean, I cannot for the life of me think of a good use for that, but yes, I was happy to see it. (laughs) What about the social aspects then? Oh, the hallway track was great. Like you said, it was, uh, you know, there there were a bunch of us podcast folk out there, talked to Graham again and uh, Amalith and uh, the, uh, the rest of the Linux lads. And uh, yeah, whole bunches of folks. You know, I still kind of struggle to get used to uh, people recognizing my voice from the podcast when I go to conferences. It's amazing. You can write articles for a website that reach, you know, 150,000 to a couple of million people a day, every day for years with your picture attached to every single one of them. And almost no one will recognize you when they see your face. But you get on a podcast and you talk to a few thousand people and you go to a Linux conference and like you speak up to ask a question in somebody's talk and you just see prairie dogging like all over his people who listen to your show are like, oh, oh, it, it's Jim. <laughs> so it sounds like you'd be keen to go next year then as long as they pay for your flight and hotel again. Absolutely. I, I can't wait to find out where they're having it next year and hopefully they'll be inviting me back as well. I mean, it's a great conference. Literally the only reason not to go would be if you didn't want to absorb the the travel expenses. So with Canonical doing that for me, heck yeah, bring them on. Yeah, I think it was really just timing is the only reason I didn't get to go the last two times is that they tend to schedule it during conference season. And I was literally at two other conferences during the time span of that conference. They may have also gotten the word that you're one of those free BSD heathens. Yeah, but they're also into ZFS these days, aren't they? So maybe that would have flown. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Automox. Go to automox.com. AI-powered modern IT automation is here. Save time, eliminate risk, and automate the patching, configuration, and control of all your Windows, macOS, and Linux endpoints with Automox. Learn more 
at automox.com. That's A-U-T-O-M-O-X dot com. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember that for various amounts on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed of either just this show or all the shows in the Late Night Linux family. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Christopher writes, I recently stumbled across an internet-accessible database backup for a small company. It is unprotected and contains employee names, phone numbers, usernames, password hashes, client information, work order notes, etc. Unfortunately, the company is fairly small, under 100 employees, and the only public contact information I have for them is their sales department. When I attempt to call and explain the situation, I come off as some scammer and they hang up on me. How do I go about responsibly reporting this? Do I just leave it be? I'm also worried about them taking legal action against me, but I'd like to help if possible. There are a couple of answers here, potentially. One is that, well, you tried to tell them, and if they didn't listen, that's on them, not on you. So, you know, you did your part. Screw them. Now, if you don't want to just leave it at that, which I completely get, and honestly, it may not even be that you're coming across as a scammer. Sales departments usually don't care about a single thing other than sales and you reporting some kind of internet security issue you discovered with the company, that ain't pumping up their numbers any. So they're not going to want to talk to you. Yeah, where's my commission in that? Exactly. You might think like, ha-ha, but no ha-ha. Like sales reps are frequently very, very focused on nothing but what gets them their commission. <laughs> yeah. Assuming that's your take on it, you're like, well, you know, sales weasels be sales weasels, but I still want to make sure that the people who run the company know. Well, you you kind of mentioned the key yourself. You said that uh, you have a dump that contains employee names and phone numbers. So if the only publicly accessible number gets you sales, use a different one. You got them. As far as not wanting to come across like a scammer, um, that's really not that difficult. I mean, the big thing is is just saying, you know, I'm not looking for anything. I just wanted you to know. You know, I wanted to help. I wanted to be a responsible neighbor and let you know. And uh, if they still want to get weird about it after that, that's on them, not on you kind of a thing. Yeah, I think you can use LinkedIn and Google to cross-reference some of the names and find someone that has a job title that sounds like they might be more receptive to hearing this information. I'd be willing to bet you that any database dump that matches phone numbers and passwords and usernames to employee proper names, it's probably going to have job titles in there too. Probably something like that. And usernames probably map pretty close to email addresses somewhere as well. I came across something like this once, oh, 10 years ago or so, except for what I had found was some bad guy's list of PayPal accounts, usernames, passwords, and balances for 1,200 PayPal accounts. And after spending a a short amount of time trying to figure out how could I launder that money, I decided instead to report it to PayPal's bug bounty program and was rewarded for it. So you genuinely did launder that money. <laughs> <laughs> Nowhere near the amount of money that was uh, in those PayPal accounts when they added them all together, but it was uh, a lot less faff than trying to figure out the other thing. <laughs> it was an unusually pricey laundromat, but boy, howdy did they clean the filth. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, in the case where a company doesn't have something like a bug bounty where you can report it, it can be quite difficult. But I would suggest not giving up too easily because doing the right thing probably saves somebody a lot of trouble. I would be very worried about them trying to pursue legal action, though, if they just don't get what you're trying to do. Yeah, and depending on the country it's in, it can get awfully dicey when the 
authorities don't understand the difference between I found this laying on the internet and I hacked in and stole this or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Like they might think you're trying to shake them down, for example. Jim's advice was just be pretty clear that that's not what you're looking for. It's like, I just want somebody to know that this is happening. Exactly. Be real clear. I'm not looking for anything. I'm just trying to disclose this to you. I'm not offering you anything. I'm not asking you for anything. I'm just giving you this information that that is a thing and it's on you. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, it is possible for people to be really litigious assholes and sue you or things like that. There was a spate of exactly that kind of thing happening in the uh, late 1990s. Newspapers, for some reason, were really bad about that in the early days of uh, CFAA. There were several cases where people discovered security problems in newspaper websites and reported to the newspaper and the group that owned the newspaper sued the absolute crap out of them. And it was a a real nightmare. With that said, that was the 1990s. And that particular legal issue is a lot better understood now. And although you you may very well still find somebody who's just going to be a complete like weird jerk and try to sue you, the odds that that's going to be a significant legal problem for you now are considerably lower because of all that casework that's happened already that can be referred back to. And it's no longer a case of like nobody really knows what the internet is. You say that, although, again, this was a while ago, but uh, do you remember the AT&T one with, I think it was the first iPhones, where it turned out in order to allow cell phone stores to activate, they published like a giant XML file of everything on the AT&T website and somebody found it and managed to download all the like the Mac address of every iPhone ever activated. And then AT&T tried to sue them saying it was abuse under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. I don't remember what actually happened with that case in the end that, you know, the first iPhone was, you know, 17 iPhones ago. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, we better get out of here then. Remember show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me at jarrest.com slash mastodon. You can find me at jrs-s.net slash social. And I'm at Alan Jude. Next.com. See you next week.